Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt Interrupts, Dr. Mike. I am Dr. Mike Todorovic and there's Dr. The, Matt interrupting. Oh. oh, wow. Look at that. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well. Good. I'm, I'm ready for a journey. Ooh, a journey through? Through a tract <laughs> that... Um, Oh, great. Eventually ends, but it at times feels like it doesn't. So it's a long journey. Long journey. With an end. Wow. Everyone's interested to hear what we're talking about. It is the respiratory system. Mm. Uh, we will be going through the anatomy of the respiratory tract. And the physiology. And the physiology, says the interrupter. Uh, but unlikely much pathophysiology. No. No disease states. Maybe a little bit of clinical relevance and... You know, along the way, but allow me to introduce myself. What are we going to cover in this? Well, firstly, I'm Dr. Mike Todorovich. <laughs> I am your host. I am your leader. Uh, I am the chief of this podcast, and I'm joined by my sidekick uh, subordinate. Uh, okay, sidekick. Well, that'll work. Yeah, that'll the, work. The Robin to my Batman, uh, you could say, especially considering the tights and the cape that he wears. Uh, <laughs> Going through a spiritual system. It's right. comfortable. It's but, comfortable. Um, yeah, could have worn underpants underneath, but anyway. Where do you want to begin? At the at the nose, I think. No, we should begin with what does the respiratory yeah, system I think it, do? Yeah, I think it's important to kind of set the scene, get an overview introduction of what the respiratory system is all about. Yep. And then we can maybe go on that anatomical journey. Wonderful. What do you think? I think that's beautiful, man. Okay, so should we first break it up in terms of functions? Look at the overall functions of the respiratory system. Yes. When when you when so you, why do you have this system, Michael? Why do you need a respiratory system to breathe? You dingus. What does that mean, though? Well, it means to breathe, take air in, take air out. Done. We're okay. Finished. So air passageway. Okay. That's no, that's one of one. That's one. That's one. But air passageway. Four to go. No, three to go. We'll we'll, we'll say four in total. All right. Um. Air passageway, one. Okay, not much of a function, but anyway, I think uh, <laughs> gas exchange. 
<laughs> Two. That's probably a, a pretty important <laughs> one. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, why I'm, are you mean on the respiratory system? Oh, not really a function there. Well, to say like, that pull your I, socks up. I have a respiratory system for a passageway for air? Yeah, well, how are you going to get the gas exchange? How are you going to get the air to do the gas exchange, Michael? All right, fair. I, I, I concede. You need a passageway. All right, so we've got air passageway, we've got gas exchange. A hidden passageway. Oh, is it? Well, some of them probably are. Um, said that in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. Uh, detection of odours. I think that's a third. That's not a, a good way to follow that last statement. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and fourth, uh, sound production. Yeah. Can we put a fifth? Yeah, go on. What about um, pH balance? Yeah, I like was, pH balance. Or was that just part of gas exchange? Of, yeah. Maybe, but I, I think it's it's a standalone. We always talk about how- It's important. The Pretty impo- important. Like yeah. if it, you get it wrong, things go downhill quickly. Yeah, if you're, you mean if your respiratory <laughs> system's not working very well, pH to do, balance. To do the, yeah, the what, sorry? Acid, to do the acid-base balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, I think everyone's loving the first three minutes of this episode. I'm enjoying it. All right, so- So what were those- what were they? Five. Let's go five. All right. Air passageway. Yep. So conduct conducting air, yep. um, which will have gases, which then leads us to the second, which is gas exchange. So putting oxygen into the body, taking carbon dioxide out. Yep. Uh, and then detection of odours. Let's so just say smell, Michael. Olfaction, if okay. you want to I be like accurate. that one. Yeah. Uh, sound production. Yep. So not just moving that air oh. through our vocal cords, but also resonating air through our sinuses. Oh, okay. Right? Yep. Um, and then finally, your fifth one that you added on, which is pH maintenance. Acid, acid, acid base balance. Acid base balance. Specifically with CO2 excretion. Really, that's it, right? That's all yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. right. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's function. That's why we have a respiratory system. Now, to perform these functions, we need to understand the anatomy because yep. form equals function. So when we go through the respiratory system, we should talk about the respiratory tract. Should we say respiratory or respiratory? No. It's not like a respiratory. <laughs> However, that would be a good name for a device, a respiratory. Sounds but- like a Greek gentleman. Spiro. 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 Yeah, Spiros. It's probably where it comes from. Did you have a look at the etymology here? I didn't. No, no, did I. Well, respiratory, I think that's just air, isn't it? Or respire, that's to breathe. To breathe. Yep. Yeah. All right, so let's look at the respiratory tract and we should begin at the nose. That's well, how, how do we, how do we organise this system anatomically. Oh, great point. Well, anatomically, you can break it up into the upper and lower respiratory tract. So that's structurally. That's a structural definition where basically the upper respiratory tract is the nose down to the pharynx. And then the lower respiratory tract is the larynx, which is underneath the pharynx, uh, down to the alveoli. So that's the upper versus lower structural yep. def, uh, sort of demarcation. Uh, but you can also break it up functionally by uh, what we call the conducting zones. So the tubes that just carry air. Yep. And then the respiratory zones where exchange, exchange gases happens. occurs. Okay. So they're, that's, they're different types of organizations, structural versus functional. Brilliant. Now respiratory tract beginning at the nose, finishing at the alveoli. Let's look at the structures. So this is more the anatomical. Yeah, so I think what we should do is go through the anatomy, uh, correlate that with the histology, and then correlate that with the physiology. Okay. So why would that structure look like that? Why would that structure be composed of that type of tissue and how all of that is relevant to the function? 
Okay. So bringing the picture together, that's what that's what people want, man. That's what people want. Can I add another function? Uh, yeah, go. Air conditioning. Um, that is a machine. <laughs> that's a man or human-made machine. Um, so you say the respiratory tract is to cool us down? No, no. It's more to condition the air that you're bringing into the body. All right, let's get there. We'll reckon, get there. But do you reckon, do you give me some marks for that? I give you part marks. Okay. Because y- you're not wrong, but let's first talk you're, about you're not inspiration. Right. not saying you're, you're, <clears throat> you are right, but I'm not saying you're wrong. All right, so are we going anatomically? Um, External anatomy. Let's so, first start. So are we starting with the upper respiratory tract? Correct. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay, all right. Can we just say where the demarcation point is? I did. Or we'll do that. As we move through. Yeah. Yeah. And I did. Okay. So. What did you say? Was? I said the nose to the pharynx is the upper respiratory tract and the larynx. The lower pharynx? Like the laryngopharynx? Yeah. Okay. All um, right. So let's start in the upper respiratory tract. So this okay. is uh, arguably where the air will first enter. You happy with that? Yep. If you're at least a nose breather. Yes. Okay. Some people do refer to you as a mouth breather. Well, when I sleep, I think I, I breathe from a mouth. Bit of an insult, but he didn't get it. Um. All right, so let's have a look at the nose or the nasal cavity. So this is, in your case, it's... Um, yes, please, <laughs> go on. Here we go. Nose joke. <laughs> Enlarged, megaly, nasal megaly. Rhinomegaly? There we go. All right, so uh, it's basically the nose is... is What's uh, the term where people... Uh, I think it was mostly Mediterranean gentlemen had a particular nose and they had a term for that type of nose. It's like an old school name for it. That uh, particular nose. I don't know, but I'm sure it's a rude name. No, I'm I sure don't it's think a name so. Not used anymore. Anyway, you can quickly look that up while I continue on. Like having a Roman nose? Yeah, what is that called? Having a Roman nose. Yeah, but there's a, there's a special term for it. Romany? Uh, no. Anyway, so starting at the upper respiratory tract, the first kind of region is the nasal cavity. Happy with that? Or do you want to go nose externally? Nose externally as the external anatomy, obviously. Okay. Um, and then bringing the air in moves through the two holes of the nose, the yep. nares. Um, all the nostrils. Which, all the nostrils, which have these coarse, long, relatively darker hairs, um, these th- thick hairs. Unless you pluck them. Very true. Mm. Um, do you know what those hairs are called? Um, Starts with V. V- Vibrissae. Okay. Yep. And those hairs are there just to catch larger particles that probably shouldn't be entering. Like fingers. Well, it doesn't really stop yours from going in. (laughs) And so bringing air in and now it's in the nasal cavity. So a a cavity being a hollowed out area within the skull. And when you look inside the nasal cavity, uh, there's a couple of features that we should look at. Firstly is if we look at the barriers, superiorly, you're going to have the area where olfaction will occur. Yep. So this is going to be neurons that directly project. You could pretty much say they project from the brain. Right, these neurons projecting through into the nasal cavity, through this little plate, cribriform plate. Yep, got the cribriform plate. Got little holes in it. Yep. Neurons project through. They've got olfactory detectors on them, so receptors, sensory neurons. Uh, when you bring odorants in or chemicals, they can bind, lock and key mechanism, and you can have a sense of smell. Sends this signal directly back to the brain through the olfactory nerve. Which cranial nerve is that? One. Okay. <laughs> Side point. Yeah. Um, there is an a new, uh, I guess, area of research looking at the possibility that this is an area where 
infections may get into the brain through this particular mechanism. Makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, it is a direct pathway to the brain. So either infecting the nerve itself or somehow getting through that cribriform plate into the brain and then even looking at conditions like, say, Alzheimer's disease, and which Parkinson's may... Either. yeah. So anyway, that's a side point. Uh, another side point is that that cribriform plate, because the hairs move through a, a bony plate, that a knock to the head or a sufficient knock to the head can actually shift the plate and shear off those neurons and lose somebody's sense of somebody smell. can lose their sense of smell, loss of olfaction, um, and. Uh, I remember Dr. Carl talking about this years ago, calling it surfer's anosmia. So anosmia means loss of smell because a lot of surfers- Would hit, the, hit their board? Yeah, well, they would fall the off ground. the board, would hit them in the head oh, and they would lose their sense of smell. Face plant into the wave. Yeah. And the board, knock them in the head, lose their sense of smell, surfer's anosmia. You can't get it back, um, but- a Surfboard? Um, <laughs> yeah, it depends if you've strapped it to your leg or not. Uh, but- it, it, now, a loss of smell isn't necessarily going to be an indication that you've been knocked in the head. You could have a cold where the mucus that's being produced in this nasal cavity is just impeding the way these molecules are traveling to the olfactory neurons. They're just getting absorbed by the mucus. Yep. Which then leads us to now the rest of this nasal cavity, which is just surrounded by mucus. It is mucus producing tissue. Yep. Um, it The type of cells that are present, uh, pseudostratified columnar epithelia. On the surface at least. Yeah, so pseudostratified means it looks like there's many layers of epithelial cells, but it's just one layer. Columnar, so they're longer than they are wider. Ciliated, so they've got little hairs on the outside. Microscopically. Exactly. Um, and so this is the t- this is basically the, the histology, the cells. Interspersed with goblet cells, which yes. produce mucus. And so that's important because you're producing a lot of mucus and you've got these fingertip-like projections, these tiny little hairs that are also helping capture this mucus but also move them to an area of the nasal cavity which either you can snot out your nose or throw to the back of your throat to swallow. Yeah, and there's also um, within this region, there's these kind of elaborate bony structures that look like um, like seashells in a way. folds, right? Yeah, which are conky. Yeah, and meatuses. And so this kind of allows the air when it gets shot through the nose to get through like a whirlwind fashion, and this is called a turbinate, um, shot around these shell-like, bony shell-like projections. Yeah. And that just increases the surface area of the air moving through the nasal cavity before it moves on down to the back of the mouth. And the reason for that... Three reasons. Okay. Well, essentially this is the air conditioning, Mm. to help warm up the air, to humidify the air and to take out foreign particles like dust, pollen. So to clean the air. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I I really like talking about this part because it does look like there's these folds, like these peaks and troughs in the nasal cavity. And it is amazing because you take that breath in and it does spin, turbinate that air. And just like... You ever go to a theme park or you go to like when... Um, Gravit- Gravitron? Yeah. There's like a local... That makes me sick. ...event and you hop in and it sort of spins you and you get stuck to the wall. Mm. Um, that's sort of what happens here. It spins the air, throws the particulates, whatever they may be, pollutants, particles, whatever, throws them to the walls of the nasal cavity, which has mucus and it sticks to them. And termed snot. Snot. Sticks to it and creates the snot. But the other thing is that in the nasal cavity... Um, th- 
the epithelia is really thin. There's huge amounts of blood vessels right at the surface or just under the surface, I should say, um, which helps warm up the, the air that you're breathing in. So that's that other thing, but also humidify it because humidification is simply attaching water molecules to yeah. oxygen. It's actually erectile tissue. Excuse me? Erectile tissue. So it's as similar as um, certain genital regions. Yes. And when that becomes uh, engorged Gorged. with blood, it becomes, um, how am I going to word this? Stiff. <laughs> sure. So, but You're basically saying a nasal stiffy. Remember the word stiffy? Yeah. You say stiffy that, a lot. That takes me back. That really takes me back. Yeah. Um, so when you bring a lot of blood to these erectile tissue in your nose, you get a blocked nose. Yes, yes, so, that's right. And it can alternate. You can have one block nose and then another block nose and that's actually like circadian in a way. Yeah, it helps you regulate sleep. So yeah. moving from back to side, you kind of block one nose and you move over to the other. But you would also experience this when you're sick and you've got an upper respiratory infection. The inflammation that's associated with that virus or bacteria will cause, as we know with all inflammation, more blood flow to the area and that erectile tissue gets engorged with blood, which blocks your nose off. Yes. And, you know, one form of treatment is decongestants, which is uh, like a sympathomimetic. Yeah, which basically activates the sympathetic nervous system, vasoconstricts to those blood vessels and they basically... Reduce the mucus production. I actually had a, um, just recently, an upper respiratory tract infection yeah um didn't wasn't really annoying it d- during the day but at night i just got this nasal drip so it just kind of dripped on the back of my nose making a cough and made me cough yeah. so i went to the chemist and asked for a or the pharmacist uh yep a decongestant and they gave me a spray which had both an alpha one agonist right and a uh, muscarinic antagonist in together. So that means it stimulated the sympathetic nervous system and antagonized and in, or inhibited the parasympathetic nervous system. So you had a big sympathetic effect in your nasal cavity. Yeah, which basically means it dried it all up. Yeah, of and course. literally, I didn't. My nose, my nose was like a desert <laughs> for probably thirty six hours. Like you know how you when you get off a plane yeah. after a long trip, it's so Real dry. dry it was like that yeah. for thirty six hours. I tell you what's interesting, um, and this has to do with so if you don't take a sympathomimetic, for example, but you do travel from an area of so we live in Queensland in Australia, very humid, regardless of the, the season. Um, but if you travel to a drier place in Australia, it's not uncommon to get a blood nose. And that's because- like Burke. Pun? Like Burke. Like Burke and Wills. And just the, the place called Burke. Okay. Yeah. Just choose an obscure place in Australia that know of the listeners. Sorry, listeners, if you live in listener, Burke. Listener. Um, so, yeah, you can go to this dry, a drier place and because your nasal cavity has so many blood vessels underneath the, the mucosa, if it dries up a little bit, it can form very small cracks that then- make you have a nosebleed yeah relatively profuse nosebleed so just and that highlights how much how many blood vessels are present in your nasal cavity a couple, um, a couple of the th- there you go oh i was just going to say the other thing about the nasal cavity we should know are the sinuses is that what you were going to bring up yeah the sinuses are one so these um are kind of pockets of air what would you say they're, they're just um, cavities. Cavities. They're just other uh, in your skull. Yeah, hollowed um, out. So you got some above your, your eyebrows, is the frontal, some below your eye on the cheekbones. That's the maxilla, mm-hmm. and some kind of at the back of your nose, being the ethnoid. So they lighten the skull, yep. but also help with um, the sound resonating. Resonance. Yeah. And so they should be empty, and. 
but even the cells that line those sinuses are similar to the nose, so they mm. still produce mucus, but they drain they have ducts that drain into the nasal cavity yeah. that kind of sit under those turbinates and hopefully they drain out. But in some conditions, like again, an upper respiratory condition where it becomes engorged with blood, it becomes inflamed, those ducts become blocked off and you can develop sinusitis, which is quite painful. I've never really had it. Yeah, and the, I, I don't get it either. But the, And the reason why is not just because there's mucus. So remember, anytime you have inflammation, you're going to have some sort of f- fluid buildup, yeah. right? And and that edema, edema. And if it's in a mucus, mucosal tissue, it's going to increase the mucus production. So you produce all this mucus in your nasal cavity. And here's the thing: like Matt said, there are these exits or ducts where usually things drain through. But if you produce so much mucus, it blocks those ducts. But the thing is that air gets absorbed into the mucus and you create a negative pressure yeah. in the nasal cavities um, and this is what causes the n- nasal headaches, right? the sinus headaches, yeah. I should say, uh, which can be extremely painful. The last little hole in that region of importance uh, is the duct that goes to the middle ear. So it's the eustachian tube. It's not called that anymore, mate. Um, pharyngotympatic tube. Yeah. Or just like the auditory tube or something they call it. Uh, what do they call it now? They call it something like that. But yeah, I always say you station tube. So it, so that basically drains or equalizes your middle ear yeah. to the back of your nose. And again, that tube or that duct is surrounded by actually it's surrounded by uh, tonsillar tissue. Mm-hmm. And again, if you can if you get a upper respiratory inf- tract infection, particularly bad in children, that can block off that tube or the opening to the tube and your middle ear becomes high pressurized or even in infected and that's mm. a middle ear infection, which causes a lot of pain for children. I know it's not respiratory necessarily focused, but anytime you've got a hole, not always, but a lot of times, anytime you've got a hole that's leading from the external to the internal, often you have tonsils there and tonsils are lymphatic tissue that basically just takes up infections and helps protect. Is, does that cover the yeah, that's nasal cavity? That's like a podcast on its own. Yeah, good point. And we did it in 20 minutes. Jeez, okay, we've got a lot to go. So the next part of the respiratory tract from the nasal cavity is the pharynx, which has three portions associated with the upper, middle, and lower. The upper is the nasopharynx. Yep. The middle is the oropharynx, and the lower is the laryngopharynx, which makes sense. Upper pharynx is basically the back of the throat nearest the nose. Yeah. Oropharynx is basically back of the throat through the oral cavity. Yep. And then the laryngopharynx is the back of the throat, right at the bottom, just where the larynx is, which is down to the glottis voice box, yep. basically. Um, only point I want to bring up here is that um, they all conduct air but only to conduct food yep. or, or, or shift food through. An interesting point, just again, it's a clinical relevant one, is if each one of these parts separately get like an infection associated with, which comes with inflammation, you'll see the common signs and symptoms associated with that. So if it's the nasopharynx with the nasal cavity, you're going to get a blocked nose and loss of smell. If it's the back of the throat, you're going to get a sore throat and potentially increase in tonsil size. Yeah. And if it's the laryngopharynx, this is where you're going to potentially lose your voice or have voice changes. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Good point. Um, all right. So from the pharynx, we then go down to the larynx. And the larynx is our voice box, um, or at least in part. And in So po- now we're moving into the lower respiratory tract? 
Yeah, good point. We've now just de- – that's the demarcation point. From the pharynx to the larynx, that's the demarcation point between the upper and lower respiratory tract. A couple of important points here is that the larynx is pretty much just cartilage with some muscles and tendons. And I think the larynx More is made ex- up of – Well, it's going to be external to the respiratory tract, all the muscles. Not, yes. Not so much in the tract itself. It's kind of around moving all the cartilages, which – help to change the diameter of this region, but also the movement of the vocal cords. Absolutely. And there's nine bits of cartilage held together and moved through these tendons and muscles, like you said. Um, the A couple of important points here. I don't want to go through all the different types of cartilage and their names, but the, <laughs> the laryngeal cartilage is probably the most important, which has your laryngeal I don't really prominence. think you can say one more than the other. Okay, true, because they're all important, but I think- but they'll get, Others will get offended. Let's just say the most prominent actually well, it's has actually the got a prominent in the name, right. right? So the laryngeal prominence is your Adam's apple, which everybody has, just so you know, it's not a male thing. Um, it's just more prominent in males generally, right? Yeah, because testosterone makes it bigger. Oh, so it's not where your testicles are attached to? Um, uh, not mine, okay. but I mean- it was theorized. That Aristotle. Yeah. Aristotle thought that the reason why when your voice deepened as you got older was because your testes were attached to your larynx and they pulled it down because obviously the testes drop the older you get. Fair point. Um, Matt's still waiting. So <laughs> you've got your laryngeal prominence, which is your Adam's apple. And then if you feel, because I'm feeling right now, underneath that laryngeal prominence, you feel that there's sort of like a squishy part, like a softer part where there's no cartilage. Do you know what that area is? Pectoris major. Uh, no, that, that's, that's, the, that's the pec, so you're going a bit too low. Oh. But just underneath the laryngeal prominence, do you know what that little... Cricothyroid membrane. Is there anything clinically important about that? Well, they sometimes use that as an emergency airway. There if you, you have an obstruction above, so something sitting on the cords and the cords are, are closed, mm. they sometimes will go in that particular membrane to put an airway in. Cool. But that my but understanding- Only if it's blocked from- Above. Above. My, under, my, understanding, if it's below. my understanding would be this is only a short-term airway. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so- uh, that's the thyro- uh, the the larynx, but it's also got the vocal cords. Yep, um, which- it's also got a structure, the epiglottis, which oh, yeah. I don't know if where you put this, but it it's kind of an important cartilage that separates the airway from the gastrointestinal tract. Yes. So whether you want to put this as part of the GIT or the respiratory, make your choice up. Well, because it's attached. Make to your the choice tongue. up now. Is it because of its attachment to hyoid and the tongue and so forth? And when you swallow, the movement of the tongue moves the epiglottis to cover the respiratory tract so you don't Yeah, part of a swallowing food. mechanism, yeah. Yeah, swallow yeah. One of the phases of the swallowing mechanism, yeah. Yes. So it would just close over the airway when you swallow. Yeah. You don't if you're want- drinking milk and you're laughing, well, no, that's a uvula where it sort of stops uh, food from going back up. Or you just put um, Coke and the Mentos in your mouth and close your mouth, it'll come out your nose. Blow out your ears too, probably. But I don't know if there's anatomy to- uh, That's not possible. Enforce that theory. Um all right, so the vocal cords. So the vocal cords are just some uh, strands of connective tissue, basically, that cover the length of the opening of the larynx. And obviously, when you breathe or bring air in or out, I should more likely when you breathe air out, you can push air across these vocal cords and create sound. 
yeah. and yep. that sound and that we vibrate. create. So you can create range, you can create pitch, you can create loudness. So the range has to do with like the length and the thickness of these vocal cords. And males tend to have thicker vocal cords, so their range tends to be you know more of a well the pitch would be deepness yeah right um but the range of the voice like a like a tenor to a um soprano right um that's pit uh, that's range and that's the thickness and and the length but the the pitch has to do with how tightly they're pulled so the tautness um the tension and that more so has to do with the frequency of the air moving through so you can basically do this with a balloon fill a balloon up with air and then you grab the end and you, if you pull it really tight, the air coming out goes really high pitch and if you let it go and it goes, it's more deeper pitch. And I think it's, there's only one muscle that does that, mm-hmm. crocothyroid um, muscle. Yep. Um, and that is important and that, that was named, I think, after an opera singer. Um, well, the, sorry, the nerve that innovates it. Yes. Um, which I think is a recurrent laryngeal nerve but, Fact check me. Oh, that, was, done, that was her name, was it? The I, that was a sh- strange name. Oh, no, name. Uh, fact check me because I haven't done head and neck anatomy for some time. So mm-hmm. my um, anatomical knowledge has dropped away. Yep. But uh, I think it's a recurrent laryngeal nerve um, innovating that particular um, muscle. And I think it was called the nerve of Gallokerchi or something. Oh, yeah. And um, I think she had thyroid surgery. Oh. And... Um, for a tumour, presumably, and the surgeon accidentally nicked that nerve and oh. she lost that ability for the tensing of the vocal cords. Oh, so wow. that you would, like you mentioned, you'd lose that high, high pitch. How horrible. Yeah. So they're the vocal cords of the larynx. Uh, let's now move down to the trachea. Oh, just quickly, the crocothyroid muscle is actually innovated by the um, superior laryngeal, not the recurrent. The l- recurrent does all the muscles of the larynx. Right. The external branch of the superior laryngeal is the only one that does the that one muscle which is the crocothyroid. Right, so no need but to it's still, but it's still the uh, it's still the or sometimes known as the nerve of Gallokerchi which is because of the opera singing context. All right. So trachea. We are onto the trachea. This is now uh, basically a big long tube around about 15 centimeters, 13 to 15 centimetres long um, that goes from the pharynx down to what we call the bronchi. Uh, And this tube, the histology of the tube, again, is pseudo pseudo stratified ciliated epithelia, uh, produces mucus, and also it has these C-shaped cartilaginous rings. Rings. Um, Hyaline? Highland cartilage, yes, the most common type of cartilage. And so these C-shaped rings, I want you to think about this, Matt. They're C-shaped. They're not fully enclosed circles. Why are the rings C-shaped and not fully enclosed? Um, I guess at the back there's some other tissue that helps to change their diameter. Why would you want to change the diameter of your trachea? I guess like air needs that type of space. I think... Well, there is a structure behind it. Oh, yeah, you're getting yeah. closer now. What is okay. it? Well, it's esophagus. Yes, and what goes through the esophagus? Food. Uh-huh, and sometimes people like yourself don't, don't chew. chew very well, swallow food like a duck. Yeah, that's right. Like big chunks, like I've seen Matt eat food. Um, like a whole hamburger at once. Inhales it. 
And uh, obviously it doesn't inhale it because it doesn't go down the trachea. Thank you, uh, epiglottis. But when it goes down his esophagus, his esophagus distends and it distends into the trachea. Yep. And thankfully you can distend into the trachea. It's not a problem because the C-shaped rings, the trachea, uh, the esophagus is at the back of the ring, at the opening of the C, so it has room to distend. If that was a fully closed ring- It wouldn't be able to do that. The food would go down, get caught- and you'd die. <laughs> Matt doesn't get to propagate. He doesn't get to. But pass also on the, his mu- the muscle material. at the back, which is the tracheatus, I think trachealis, that will narrow the trachea off to some degree when you want to do things like coughing or sneezing. It's also important just to tell people, and we'll get to this point later, is that in asthma attacks, for example, where the smooth muscle of the airways constricts, it's not happening at the trachea. No, it's not even happening at the bronchi. So just make a lot of people further down. think that we'll, it's we'll get happening there. that high up. Okay, so the trachea around about 15 centimetres long. We move our way down. There's, what, 15 odd? Until we hit Carina. Okay, one sec. 15 oh. odd C-shaped rings until you do hit the Carina. Uh, so that is a split. We've got a colleague called Carina. We do. Yeah. Do you ever say that you <laughs> remind me of the split in my trachea? <laughs> that, that then bifurcates to my left and right main stem bronchi. I I haven't yet. Oh, okay. Well, you probably should. So it does branch off. So actually from the trachea, the airways will branch and branch and branch and branch around about 23 separate times. And when it does this, they get more numerous but smaller in diameter. But let's first focus on this left and right main stem bronchi. They still have cartilage associated with them. They still have uh, ciliated epithelia, probably more columnar epithelia at this point. Then pseudo. Then pseudo. Um, uh, still producing mucus. And the difference anatomically is one of these main stem bronchi is wider and more vertical. And do you have any idea which one that may be, Matthew? Uh, the right. The right. That's right. It's shorter, it's wider, it's more vertical. What's the clinical significance of this? Well, I guess if you inhale something that goes – beyond the epiglottis, goes down into the larynx, gets past the vocal cords, there's a possibility that if it starts to go to the trachea, it will choose a left or a right. Does it choose, does it? Makes yeah, a it does choose. Okay. Um, Again. I, I remember I was speaking to a um, cardiothoracic surgeon once mm. and, and he said he had a, a patient who inhaled a macadamia nut. Whoa. And it went down the right and then went to the apical, which is the first... Split, split off the off the primary right, wow. and it kind of lodged itself there, and became a uh, an infection. Do you go down with a scope to do that? You'd have to. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. But I think that whole the apical lobe of the right had to be removed because it was all infected. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So see now, Matt always asks me to throw peanuts into his mouth, and this is the now, reason why we're going to. Why you shouldn't? Yeah. Why you shouldn't? Yes. All right. So that's the clinical significance of the bronchi, but they just keep branching off. Now the bronchi, as they branch, like I said, 23 odd times and get smaller and smaller in diameter, the cartilage starts to disappear. Smooth muscle starts to become more apparent. The epithelia, like we said, originates as pseudostratified columnar epithelia, 
with cilia, then becomes Just columnar columnar epithelia with cilia, then becomes cuboidal epithelia, and then the cilia starts to diminish, and then it starts the. Uh, so we should should we mention quick, just quickly here why we have the cilia particularly in this kind of yep, location. Just, just but let me just finish okay. this, and then it goes from cuboidal down to once we get into the smaller, smaller, smaller airways, it just becomes more flattened, Flat. and. Matt's right, but the f- uh, we should talk about its reasoning, but let's just think about this first. Going from proximal to distal, so uh, nasal cavity down to the deepest part of our airways, you've got high amounts of mucus, high amounts of cilia, low amounts of smooth muscle, and more amounts of cartilage, particularly if we start at the trachea. Yeah. And the cartilage diminishes, the small muscle increase, a uh, smooth muscle increases. Proportionally. Proportionally. Yeah. The cilia decreases, the mucus decreases, right? So Matt said, why do we have this cilia all the way down our airways? Well, at least let's say from the trachea down. To the bronchioles. Yeah. Beginning of the bronchioles. Well, let's say, there's just, we'll just call it the bronchi, let's say. Okay. Um, they're ciliated mm. and there's mucus... Amongst the cilia. Yeah, you could call it a mucociliary... Uh, escalator. Oh, escalator. Why or elevator. Escalator? Oh, which one? That? I say escalator. Okay. But why? Um, well, it kind of... The cilia, which are like little um, bits of hair or yep. like eyelashes, mm-hmm. um, when certain foreign particles get stuck in the mucus, these cilia kind of beat... Proximally, is that the right term? Like pushing upwards. Yeah, I think so. So they push the mucus in a wave, which hopefully things are stuck in it like dirt, pollen, bacteria, pollutants, and it pushes it up the trachea higher, higher, higher until it gets kind of in your pharynx pharynx region, which you can then produce into sputum, sputum, let's say. And then you have the choice, which most of us would just swallow without really paying a great deal of attention to it. You would. I spit it. I just spit it every – it doesn't matter where I am. Just on the ground? Yeah, sometimes I'm in a lecture and it's like (laughs) – I've got one of those bins. Spittoons. A spittoon, yeah. So um, the reason for doing this is to clear the airway and usually it will just throw it into your gastrointestinal tract, which then goes into your stomach and kills everything. Are you saying that we don't want all this crap falling down into our airway, into our lungs? Lower airway, yeah, that's right. Yeah, to our LVR. So this is also part of the air conditioning. Yeah. So it will prevent that. And some people, those who may tobacco smoke. Oh, yes. Or vape. Yeah, I'm not sure about vaping. I can't okay. comment on this. Right. But I definitely am aware that tobacco smoking I'm kind make of- Make an educated guess and say- Possibly vaping as well. Okay. But let's just st- – we, we definitively know – But the tobacco smoking, what it does yeah. is it kind of stuns the cilia and then you start over time – this is probably years to decades mm-hmm. – they start to go through metaplasia, which is no. a change in form. Yeah. So they go from this pseudostratified or um, columnar ciliated yep. or ciliated. Yep. Um, they change form into more of what like a – stratified yeah so if you think about um epithelia form equals function and if and you know the function of epithelia in the airways is to secrete mucus and have cilia to remove all this gunk but if it starts to be damaged and have all these chemicals coming in it's going oh i need to protect myself and what's the protecting type of epithelia stratified stratified and so So you lose the little lose a little cilia yeah and so you lose that escalator 
So what happens to the, all the gunk, Matt? They have to cough it out. Yeah, and that's the why you why, get the smoker's cough. Yeah, like uh, you wake up in the morning. No, not me. I don't smoke, but uh, I have heard smokers wake up in the morning. First thing they do is just cough for about half an hour, bring up all the gunk that's fallen down into their lungs throughout the night and the previous day. Yeah. Gross. So we've got that. We're down. All these airways are branching and branching from bronchi to bronchioles. Now, bronchiole, by definition, is simply an airway that's smaller than one millimeter in diameter. That's tiny, right? And you've got two types of bronchioles. You've got terminal bronchioles, which are right at the end, and then respiratory bronchioles. So this is interesting because this changes now – the functional division, right? Correcto. Okay. So remember, early on in this podcast, about four days ago, we <laughs> said that we can break up the respiratory tract structurally from upper to lower respiratory tract, and we spoke about that. And then we said functionally, the conducting zones where air just moves through pipes and then the respiratory zones. So, so far we've only spoken about conducting, conducting zones, right? Nasal cavity, pharynx, larynx, trachea, bronchi and the terminal bronchioles, they're all conducting zones until we hit which, to which the- Which basically means no gas exchanges occurring. Just movement. Yep. Until we hit to the respiratory bronchioles. Now- This is where the business is. This is the business end. It's all that matters, truly. And uh, here we've got a different type of epithelia. Now the epithelia uh, is sort of bulging out a little bit into what we call alveoli as plural or alveolus as singular. And they're simple- squamous epithelia. So, so there's one layer pancreas. flat. Yeah. Yep. They're so thin that it's 0.5 micrometers in diameter. That's how thin. How thin's that? Pretty thin. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it would be thinner than a piece of paper. I think way thinner. I know, I said that. <laughs> uh, so in so now we're in these alveoli, right? Alveolus for singular, alveoli for plural. <laughs> Three cell types present. Now, the one that makes up the majority of these alveoli, um, I'd call them. A, I'd call them number one. Type one. Yeah. Because they're number one. They're, number they're one. the most abundant too. Ninety-five percent of the of the epithelia in the alveoli is this simple squamous epithelia, and it's called type one epithelia. They are the gas exchange cells. So oxygen and carbon dioxide needs to move back and forth between the uh, through these cells through the between cells. these cells, right? That's why they're so thin. That's right. So uh, it just makes it easier for them. What about type two cells then? They produce um, surfactant. So they produce Did a type of fluid that kind of keeps the alveoli open. Yes. So it's a, a detergent, detergent like fluid. It just helps to break the water surface tension. Surface tension. Yes. And that would prevent the alveoli collapsing on, onto each other. Yes. And so it just kind of holds it open through a physical action, right? Yeah, remember, water's uh, people don't realize this, but on the microscopic scale, water is super sticky. And it's because hydrogen has a slight positive charge, oxygen has a slight negative charge, which means the hydrogen loves to bind to the oxygen and oxygen loves to bind to hydrogen. So water sticks to itself really well, again, on the microscopic scale. On the macroscopic, you pour it into a cup, you can easily pour it out and it comes out of the cup. But it's very sticky and you can see this when you pour a cup of water and you go above the lip of the cup and you form like this bulging layer that goes up called the meniscus and you can create this meniscus. Isn't that in the knee? 
Yes, different different names. Um, I mean, same name, but different meanings. But it's called a meniscus. So you get this bulging layer. And that's all because water's sticky, holding onto itself, not letting that water fall down the sides of the cup. So on the microscopic scale, like in each alveoli, if you've obviously got water in there, which you do, because remember, Matt said earlier, we... Th- Bringing, we inhale air from the external atmosphere and regardless of the temperature, let's just say it's zero degrees outside and 0% humidity, by the time it reaches your alveoli, it's 37 degrees and 100% humidified. Sorry, yes, 37 degrees Celsius and 100% humidified. In a span of what, 30 centimetres? That's enormous, right? So super, it's probably the best air conditioning unit or heater, depending on how you see it, um, that we've got anywhere, right? Man-made or not. So um, when we bring all this air in, it's humidified, which means there's huge amounts of water associated with it. So the alveoli become smothered and covered with water. Now, the point is that when you breathe in, the alveoli get bigger, makes sense. You're filling them up with air. And when you breathe out, they begin to collapse. And if they collapse enough that one alveoli edge touches the other, the water sticks to each other and it collapses. You do not have enough musculature, especially you, Matt, in your body to be able to reinflate your alveoli if this happened. If you don't have surfactant, you could not do it. Yeah, and that's the problem with premature babies is they um, have immature lungs and they haven't developed these cells yet. Mm. And so, and then they also don't have the strength in their rib cage and the musculature in the chest. And so, when they start to breathe, the airways collapse in. Yes. And so, they essentially will have problems with gas exchange. So, they would need mechanical ventilation. Mm. But I think now there's. Um, artificial surfactant that can be sprayed down their airway, which can do the job. Yeah. So it's about what, six months, I think once uh, at about six months um, in utero is when they start producing surfactant themselves. So generally it's, it's prem babies before six months. Ready to pop the question. The jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, all right, so that's – oh, and then there's type 3 LVLI cells. Is it called type 3 or just – Some people call them that. I just call them alveolar macrophages. So these are just big immune cells, cell eaters. They're just Why do we big need Pac-Man. them? Why do we need them down there? Well, if anything gets past all the other um, protective mechanisms that we spoke about and it gets right to the bottom, you need to have something that clears up the debris or the infection or whatever it is. Yeah, gobble it all up. Yeah break it down. Uh, so now we're at the alveoli and now we can talk about gas exchange. Yep. All right. So this is function two. 
It is. And remember that the alveoli, um, the surface area, if you were to unfold all your alveoli, because they sort of look like bundles of grapes, right? If you unfold it, it's about the size of a tennis court. But people who chronically smoke uh, can damage these alveoli and they start to break apart and and form larger sacs. Particularly emphysema. Exactly, yeah. particularly in emphysema. And you'd think, oh, they're larger sacs. There's a greater surface area for gas exchange. No, there's less of a surface area because if you've got one large ball or you've got a thousand little balls that make up the same size, the thousand little balls cumulatively have a larger surface area than the one giant ball. So if you were to open up a, a person with emphysema and have a look at their lungs, it's going to be like a table tennis court. So there's less surface area for gas exchange. Right? Yeah. Regardless of whether you prefer table tennis over tennis, it's not the point. It's the surface area that's important here. Thanks for clarifying that. No problem. So we now can talk about gas exchange. What do you reckon? Sounds good to me. All right. So what do we want to do? We take a breath in. That air that we inspire from the atmosphere has a certain percentage of gases. Does it? It does. From the atmosphere? Yeah. What did you think it had? It was all oxygen. Yeah, I thought it was 100% oxygen. Wow. This guy uh, <laughs> teaches health students. Um, so let's just say you live in Queensland. So oh, I actually do that. What? Wow, coincidence. All right. So let's say your name's uh, Matthew Barton, Matthew James Lorraine Barton. You live in Queensland, which is at uh, sea level. Now- Generally, well, Yes. Generally, it's unless you decide to move away from the sea and climb a mountain, <laughs> and then you tend not to be. At we don't have level. big mountains in Queensland. We've got little mountains. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know why we're talking about that. So we're at the sea. You're at Broad Beach. You're standing there, having a look at the ocean. It's beautiful. And you realize that above us, there is a large amount of air circulating. And if you were to take a cylinder and put this cylinder, all around you, like a one metre cylinder around you, but it goes all the way up to the top of the atmosphere and then take all the gases that are present inside that cylinder that's gone all the way up to the top of the atmosphere. To space. All the way to space, right, until there's no atmosphere. Okay. You'd find that there is a certain amount of pressure that all the particles of gas are placing on you in that moment. And that pressure is 760 millimetres of mercury worth of pressure. Mm. Now, consider this. What is your systolic blood pressure average? 120. 120 millimetres. And that's enough to squirt your blood a couple of metres. That's enough pressure there. Yep. Now, this is six times more than that, right? Seven times, I should say, sorry, more than that. Six to seven times more. And you'd think, but that's weird because I don't... Feel all that weight of the gas above me. That's why I'm tired at the end of the day. Because <laughs> of all the pressure, yeah, the yeah. gas pressure that's on you. I, I always bre- make this statement to my students because I'm just like, well, how come, you know, y- you can see 120 millimetres worth of pressure and what it can do to blood, but you don't feel 760. And it's simply because we were born into that atmosphere. We are constantly being surrounded by it. We're desensitized to it. We don't know it's there. It makes no sense for us to be consciously aware of all that pressure on us in one moment. But if you climb a mountain or if you go deeper into the ocean, you start to experience the pressure changes that occur. All right. So the point is that at sea level, there's 760 millimeters of mercury worth of gases on us. Okay. And that's made up of... You could say four gases, but let's just say, let's focus on three, 
right? Nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. There's obviously trace gases. So there's obviously far more than three or four. But let's just focus on these three. Nitrogen is the most abundant gas in our atmosphere. Wow. Wow, indeed. Percentage, how much? What do you reckon? It's well in the 70s. It is. It's To be a bit more specific, 78.6% of all the gas in our atmosphere is nitrogen, right? So that means... 78.6% of that 760 millimetres of mercury. So is that coming down to the alveoli when we breathe in? Correct, though. What is it doing? I'll tell you in a sec. Okay. Let's just first start. So, okay, let's just say nitrogen, 78.6% of the atmosphere. Oxygen, 20.9% of the environmental atmosphere. And carbon dioxide, 0.04%. The rest are trace gases. Don't worry about them. So we've got this 78.6 for nitrogen, 20.9 for oxygen, 0.04% of carbon dioxide. So what we need to do is now go, well, I know that all the gases around me are exerting 760 millimeters mercury worth of pressure on me. Let's find the individual pressures of these gases out of that 760. Oh, so you just get the 76, 760 and then just times it by that percent. That's right. So nitrogen, 78.6% times 760 is 597 millimetres of mercury worth of nitrogen gas on us. In the atmosphere at the moment. In the atmosphere at the moment, at sea level. For oxygen, 20.9% of 760 is 159 millimetres of mercury of oxygen. And for carbon dioxide, 0.04% of 760 is 0.3%. Not much, is it? Not much at all. All of these are termed the partial pressures, which makes sense because you've got the overall pressure of all the gases and the partial pressure is the individual gas, right? right? So we take a breath in. We're bringing in 597 millimetres of mercury worth of nitrogen gas into our alveoli. We're bringing in 159 millimetres of mercury of oxygen from the atmosphere into our alveoli and we're bringing in 0.3% of millimetres of mercury of carbon dioxide into our alveoli. All right. Now- So it goes down all those pipes we spoke about. Yep. All through the conducting zone. Yep. All the way through into the alveoli. Yep. Now it's at the bottom of the grape. That's right. It's now in those alveoli. What happens? So is it the same percentage now or partial pressure? They slightly change. Okay. So for example, nitrogen doesn't change. It's 597 millimetres of mercury worth of partial pressure in our alveoli for nitrogen, right? But- Nitrogen is not very soluble. And because it needs to pass through a, a, a layer of water, like a liquid layer through the alveoli and then into the blood, doesn't want to do it. Just wants to hang out in the just alveoli. Just wants to hang out there. So it's Car- just there for the ride. It's just there for the ride. Um, the oxygen, its partial pressure does change through the journey. So it goes from 159 millimetres of mercury worth of pressure. At your nose. At the nose to now around about 100 in the alveoli. Where do they go? Um, well... It, or 104 millimetres. They get lost along the way. They attach the water. They okay. attach to all the water and fluid. So they get, gets absorbed from by the mucus all the way through. Wow. So you lose oxygen as you as you go down. So it goes from 159 to about 104 millimetres of mercury. Okay, so down at the, the bottom of the alveoli where the gas exchange is hoping to take place, yep. the partial pressure of oxygen is at 104 millimetres of mercury. That's right. All right. And carbon dioxide now, remember when we inhaled it from the atmosphere, it was 0.3 millimetres of mercury. In the alveoli, it's 40 millimetres of mercury. It's gone up. So why is that? Well, that's because- Climate change. (laughs) Possibly. The blood that's coming to the lungs is filled with carbon dioxide and throws it out. It throws it out into the alveoli. So basically 
increasing the concentra- the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in our alveoli. Okay. So now we've got these- And we'll just focus on those two gases, yes, right? Yeah, let's just focus on oxygen, carbon dioxide because nitrogen doesn't really need to cross. It, it can cross, doesn't want to cross. And then once it's in the blood, it's it's in a, it just moves through unchanged. You can- Is it inert? It's inert. Okay. Um, you can, a couple of but things But it can, can become problematic, problematic in uh, when we- Dive, right? All right, so let's think about this. What makes a gas move from one point to another? It's a pressure difference. Okay. So you watch the news, you watch the weather, and you got the weather reporter going, we've got a high pressure system moving in because high pressures go to low pressures, right? Yeah. And so same thing happens with gases. So if you think about the alveoli and then on the other side of this membrane, of this what we call respiratory membrane, where yeah. gases need to exchange, you've got blood. Gases need to go back and forth. Blo- Oxygen, a blood vessel. Yeah, you've got a blood vessel. Oxygen wants to go from the alveoli to the blood vessel and carbon dioxide wants it, to go- Because of diffusion. And carbon dioxide wants to go from the blood vessel to the alveoli. Okay. And the only way they can go in each direction is they need to go down their own pressure gradient. gradient right. Right? Yep. And so this is super important. So the alveoli is 104 millimetres of mercury worth of partial pressure of oxygen, but the blood is only 40 millimetres of mercury worth of oxygen. So that's because um, all the oxygen's been used up in the body. Yes. So the oxygen's lower. And so the blood coming back to the lungs is low in oxygen. Yep. And so the oxygen goes down its hill, goes down its pressure gradient into the blood. Well, that's what we want. But the blood- So the gradient is 104 on the alveolic side and in the blood side, it is only, what did you call 40. it? 40. 40 yep. millimeters so of mercury. So it's a big gradient. gradient. Yep. Then, but the carbon dioxide in the blood is 45 millimeters of mercury and we sit in the alveoli, it's 40. So there's so, only a small little hill. Yeah. It's, it's, it's less of a gradient. It's, yeah. you know, it's like if you were to have a hill or a slide, the oxygen slides real steep. Uh, and the carbon dioxide slide isn't steep at all. But the carbon dioxide still goes from the blood to the alveoli at the same rate Why? that the oxygen does, even though – and you'll think, wait a minute, if I went down a steeper slide, I would go down faster, faster at a greater rate compared to the other one. It's because carbon dioxide is far more soluble. It's called Henry's Law. It's about the solubility of gases. In right? where though? Uh, liquids. So where's the liquid? The liquid is the water in, in both environments. So the, the water that's surrounding the respiratory membrane and the water in the blood. So itself. there is a bit of water line in the alveoli. Yep. Okay. So that dissolves into that. Yep. Just like mineral water or soda water. Yep. Goes into it and then it bubbles across mm-hmm. into the blood. That's right. Okay. And that it's just a small gradient of 40 on the alveoli side, 45 on the other. On the blood so side. So it's actually going the opposite way. So, said, go, so it the goes from around. the blood into the alveoli yeah. so we can breathe it out. Yep. Okay. So they're the gradients, right? So basically what happens is once you move through the whole circulation of the body, the other place that you need to exchange gases is at the tissues. So it's not just the... It's not just at the lungs that we're exchanging gases, but it's also at the, the tissues. tissues. So you can see that there's actually four events that's happening here. So you've got what's called pulmonary ventilation. This is bringing air in and out of the lungs. Then you've got external respiration, which is exchanging gases from the alveoli to the bloodstream and vice versa. So we've covered those two. Yeah. Then you've got the transport of gases through the bloodstream. Oxygen, carbon dioxide. Yeah. So that's called gas transport. And then you've got the what's called internal respiration, where you exchange gases from the blood to the tissues and vice versa. And that process is 
the same process as what's happening that we just spoke about at the alveoli to the blood and vice versa. The gases just move down their own concentration gradient. So in opposite ways. In the opposite ways. So for example, right. in the blood, the oxygen's 100 millimetres of mercury, but at the tissues, it's 40. So it goes down that hill from blood to tissue. Carbon dioxide in the blood is 40, but in the tissues is 45. So it goes from tissues to the blood down that less steep gradient, but remember the solubility difference. So the four different things, an important point to highlight here. But but really only two of them are part of the respiratory system. uh, Three. The transport or is that now going cardiovascular? That's cardio, but we said- So one and two. There's four events though. I know, then four is, I don't know where you put that. I guess you'd put- cardiovascular and then each individual tissue level. So three is respo, one is cardio. So pulmonary ventilation we've spoke about, that that's the conducting system. Yeah. Then we go to two, which you called, what did you call External it? External respiration. So that's the gas exchange. Yep. And then once we get that gas into the blood, yep. it it's really turns system. into cardiovascular. Mm-hmm. And then the last stage, number four, which is internal respiration. Is respiratory. Or you only call that resp- respiratory. Because it's called internal respiration. It's not part of the tract. No. But it's gas Or respiratory system, that's what I meant. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. Uh, yeah. That is, uh, that's interesting. It's just a physical law that's being enacted. I mean, cardiovascular system does a lot of it because it mm. brings it to the tissue. Well, we often call it the, the cardiorespiratory system yeah. because they're so in, intimately entwined in this process. Without ca- the respiratory system, cardiovascular systems could put and vice versa. But the point I want to get across here is that the term ventilation and respiration colloquially is synonymous. We use it interchangeably, yeah. but they mean very different things. Ventilation is simply just bringing air or bringing gases in and out of the body. But respiration is the exchange of gases across membranes. Okay, That's an important, for any health professional, that's a very important point. Difference. To say, is the patient ventilated is referring to is the patient getting air into the body or out of the body, but respiration is gas transport across membranes. You cool with that? That's cool. That's cool, dude. Mm. All right, bro. All right, now I think we need to talk about, well, firstly, uh, the gas transport that's happening in the bloodstream is happening a couple of different ways, right? So the oxygen- Depends which gas you're talking about. Exactly. Oxygen, two major ways. It's dissolved in the blood. Plasma. Plasma or attached or bound to the red blood cells, yep. the hemoglobin so and the red blood cells. So about 2% in the plasma right? and 98% is attached to the red blood cell, specifically the iron of the hemoglobin. Gotcha. So that's the major way yeah. red blood cells. Okay. And carbon dioxide does the same thing. So one, it can be dissolved, but remember, what did I say about its, dissolv- its solubility? Uh, it's much more soluble with, so, with Henry. So, so my assumption is it's greater than 2%. Compared, like oxygen. Oh, you, 2%. do you mean in the, the in blood? The, in the serum, yeah. Yeah, so 7% dissolved in the plasma, All right. carbon dioxide. So that makes your blood plasma closer to soda water. Oh, nice. I like yeah. soda water. And uh, is it bound to red blood cells as well? Yeah. There's um, 23% is bound to, not the iron though, oh. to the globulin, which is the protein part of the hemoglobin. Oh, so oxygen's bound to the heme portion and yeah. carbon dioxide is bound to globin. the globin portion, the amino acid yeah. side. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and there's a third way, isn't 70%, it? 70%. This is the majority. This is transported as uh, bicarbonate. So HCO3 yes. negative. And this is going to be important because this is kind of the way that the respiratory system plays a role in acid-base balance. Listen to our 
Acid Base Balance Podcast. We've done a bicarbonate buffer system, I think, podcast. Carbon dioxide binds to water, produces carbonic acid, which hates itself, splits itself apart into bicarbonate and hydrogen ions. And this bicarbonate is one way of carrying carbon dioxide around the body. So if you put more CO2 or if you retain CO2 in your blood, Mm. your blood becomes more acidic. Yep. Okay, so your respiratory system has the capacity to get rid of the CO2. So breathe it off, breathe more rapidly, breathe quicker. You can get rid of CO2 out of your lungs, out of your blood and it hopefully could drop that acidity of the blood and vice versa. Drop it or raise it. Ah, I know what you Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, drop, drop, the, drop the CO2. Drop concentration. Drop the CO2, mean. which is the hydrogen, which is increase in the pH. Yeah. Yes. All right, so let's talk about how we breathe, the mechanics of breathing. So we've just- So this is the ventilation. This is the ventilation. We've basically just assumed that everyone knows how the air gets in and out, but it's not a simple process. I always start my respiratory lectures. I always say to my students, how do you bring air in? How does air come into your lungs? And they're like, by breathing. And I go, sure. But no one's standing there pushing the air into your lungs. How do you, and they go, oh, suck it in. I'm like, sure. How? How do you suck it in? They're like, oh, through my, using my diaphragm how how you still haven't explained how any of this happens and this is why uh, no one turns up to the second lecture because uh, <laughs> i just berate and abuse uh, but it's all about again the pressure changes gases will only really move in accordance with pressure gradients from high to low so if you want to get air into the lungs you've got to make the lungs a lower pressure compared to the atmosphere that simple if you want to get air back out you're going to make the pressure higher in the lungs than the external atmosphere so how do you do that you change the volume of the volume of the um, compartment. Which compartment? The thoracic cavity, or okay. you could be a bit more specific and just say the lung tissue itself. Okay. Um, so there's a, another law called Boyle's, Boyle's law. We're spoken about Dalton's law. I don't know if I was explicit about that, but when I was talking about the partial pressures. That was the, in the atmosphere above your head, yeah, all the way to space. And I said that's that Dalton. Each partial, each gas has its own partial pressure, and gases move down their own partial pressure gradients. Gradient, yeah. That's Dalton's law, right? And that's Henry's the solubility. And so Boyle was UK Idol winner, Susan Boyle. Yeah, yeah, that's probably before the time of a lot of our listeners. Oh, sorry, Matt. Matt's just aged himself there. Uh, Boyle's law states that there's an inverse relationship. I'm just doing this off the top of my head, so I may not be verbatim, but Boyle's Law states there's an inverse relationship with the volume of a closed container and and the pressure inside of that closed container, which means you make a a container larger, the pressure inside goes down. You make it smaller, the pressure goes up. And it makes total sense because- Less less room. Yeah, inside a box, there's X amount of gas particles. If you make the box smaller- well, you've got the same amount of gas particles floating around in a smaller space. Yep. So they're more likely to bounce off the walls and bounce off each other. So their pressure goes up. Like going to a dog park. <laughs> yes. If, yeah. if the dogs were air, uh, gas molecules and the fence is your thoracic cavity. Yeah, you put them in there and they bump it into each other, get into fights. Yeah. You're yep. more likely going to be experiencing some pressure. Yeah because they're all bumping into you. They're more likely to bump into you. And that's all gas pressure is, the likelihood of a gas molecule to bump into the wall. So if the wall's closer, the pressure goes up if, you've got, if you don't change the, vo- the number of gas molecules. Yeah. All right, okay. so a, a good example of this is a syringe, right? So you take a syringe. If you were to 
obviously take the, the needle, needle off. off and put your thumb on the end of the syringe to keep it shut okay. and then pull on the barrel. You increase the volume of the barrel. It sucks, but, your, sucks your skin down into yeah, it the- Yeah, sucks your thumb, right? Okay. And that's because it's the pressure inside the the syringe itself has become negative. And to balance everything out, it tries to suck air in. Yeah. That's our airways. That's our respiratory tract. And then oppose it the other way where you fill the syringe, let's say half full. Yep. And then you put your finger on top and then you squeeze with your other hand yep. um, the plunger. And you can still move it a bit. Mm. And let's say you can uh, move it half the space, but the pressure now in that barrel is high pressurized. Yeah. And if you let your finger off suddenly, yeah. air would fly out. And that's essentially how you cough or sneeze really. Yeah, true, true. And a straw, same thing happens with a straw. When you use a straw and you suck into the straw, you're, you're sucking out the gas molecules and making it a negative pressure. So things want to move up through it. And a straw is very similar to a trachea. If you were to put your thumb on the end of a straw and suck, the straw collapses. Yeah, but all straws are now made out of uh, paper. Cartilage. Oh, paper. And they just collapse on themselves. Well, this is the great point, right? It means that when, if a straw collapses when you suck on it and put your thumb on the end. It's a bad straw. Well, in a way, it's just saying that uh, a negative pressure will force the, the tissue around it to collapse, right? So why doesn't our trachea and airways collapse? And it's because of all that cartilage. And it's not made out of paper. Good point. You're really hung up on the paper thing, aren't you? Um, it's for the environment, mate. <laughs> all right. So we know now of Boyle's Law, right? So the question is, I want to take a breath in. The only way I can do it- It's is- called Inspire. Well, thank you. I'm so glad I inspire you. Uh, you need to increase the volume of your thoracic cavity so that the pressure inside is lower than the pressure in the atmosphere. And then that way air will move down its pressure gradient because it's higher out than in, air just rushes in. So it's it's negative relative to it? That's exactly right. Okay. So then the question is, how do I increase the volume of my thoracic cavity? Muscles. Okay. Right, so so muscles, Matt. Obviously, you're not aware of them because I'm just <laughs> trying to locate any, but no, too difficult. Um, you can increase the volume of the thoracic cavity inferiorly by contracting the diaphragm. That's the inferior barrier of your thoracic cavity before it hits the abdomen. Contract it, pull it down. That increases the volume of the thoracic cavity. The external intercostal muscles sitting between your rib cage contract them. They flare your rib cage up and out, increasing the thoracic volume you've now now here's the thing your lung tissue itself is attached inside your thoracic cavity not just directly but indirectly in a way your lungs have two membranes one membrane called the visceral pleura that's stuck to the lungs itself that's continuous with it yeah it's it it's it's part of the lungs yeah and then there's a gap and then there's the parietal pleura which is on the wall of the thoracic cavity. That's the part that's attached to the thoracic cavity, yeah. the rib cage and the diaphragm and all that stuff, right? But there's a gap in between the two called the pleural cavity. Right. Now, the thing with the pleural cavity is that it's negative itself. Mm-hmm. It has a negative pressure, which means both the visceral pleura and parietal pleura stick to each other yeah. because it's with, negative. With, it's also, with, with also the water tension. Yes. Like I, I, an example I think you may have provided to me um, once was, uh, and, and this might not be an example that many people will understand, but if you work in a lab and you use a microscope, you use slides, these glass, real thin glass slides. But also work with a glass chopping board. 
On a, on a bench. On a bench. Yeah, yeah, okay. So if you've got two flat surfaces and you've got even just a small amount of water between them, it creates this suctioning because I said water's yeah. sticky, yeah. right? creates this suctioning effect which you can nearly impossibly – you can't pull it off directly. You sort of have to leverage it off. From, from an angle. From an angle. That's right, and let air – Underneath it. Yeah. So you've got the the pleural cavity is one negative. So both membranes are sucking together towards each other, but there's a fluid there keeping it stuck as well. So the point of the pleural cavity is that if you increase the volume of your thoracic cavity, so you pull the diaphragm down, pull your ribs up and out, you pull the parietal pleura with it, Mm. which pulls the visceral pleura with it, which pulls the lung tissue with it. So, Expands it all out. Yeah, so by expanding your thoracic cavity, you expand your lungs. Yep. Decreasing the pressure in your lungs, air gets sucked in. And this is just fairly passive inspiration? Great point. So it's, it's not- Called quiet f- breathing. So it's not forceful, it's just like we're breathing now at rest. Well, I get very excited, so I'm probably doing uh, forced, a bit of forced forced breathing. But okay. you, who's always cool, calm, and collected, regardless of what I say or do, you're always doing that quiet breath around about half a liter in, half a liter out. 500 mils in, 500 mils out. Quiet breath. Diaphragm is the main muscle here for that, and the external intercostals. So that's breath in. Right. To get that breath back out, you just tell those muscles to relax. Turn and off. That, and as they snap back to normal position, they decrease the volume of the thoracic cavity, decreasing the volume of the lungs, increasing the pressure in the lungs, and air gets pushed out. So the important point here is that the the lung itself has a el- elastic tissue incorporated within it. So there's a Great whole point. lot of like rubber bands that are wrapped down around each one, one of those bunch of grapes. Yeah, yeah. And that means as the grapes get pulled on from that, plural tug that you yeah. spoke about. Plural tug, it, I like that. that's a good band, it, band name. It stretches those rubber bands and it kind of brings it further away mm. and that's fine because it allows the air to come into your lungs and do the, the gas exchange. But then when you want to breathe out, what happens is the diaphragm turns off, but that elasticity has generated that pull yeah. and it kind of snaps it back to its resting state. Yes. And that generates a volume change, Mm. which then increases the pressure within the lung, which is positive relative to the outside, and that forces the air back out. Yeah, so not just the relaxation of the muscles, but like you just said, elastic recoil. Well, it needs that recoil, otherwise it wouldn't come out. And this Well, there's diseases like emphysema where you lose that elasticity. You take a breath in and the airways open up really nicely, but they don't snap back. Yeah, they stay. They just stay. They're almost like a instead of a, a balloon, yeah, filling the balloon up and letting it go, it will empty itself. Mm. It's almost like if you did it with a paper bag, it just stays oh, full. Good point. Yeah, and that's so a good that's point. what emphysemics would suffer from is just this filled lung, which mm. is an overinflated lung, and that can cause them to be kind of barrel chested. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that great point, great point. So that's the quiet breath in and the exhalation, so the inspiration, expiration or inhalation, exhalation for the quiet breath. Sometimes you want to breathe in a little bit more than that 500 mils in. So in addition to contracting your diaphragm and your external intercostal muscles, you need to sort of recruit a few more muscles in this process. So this is where you need to sort of employ your understanding of the musculoskeletal system. So what muscles are attached to what? And have a think. So what muscles are attached to your rib cage to further increase their um, 
Uh, are, we talk, are we talking about breathing in or out here? Take, no, breathe in. So we're talking about a big deep breath in, right? So think about the scalenes, for example. And so the they're, sterno- they're, in, they're in your neck? Yeah, and your sternocleidomastoid. So these, muscle, uh, these muscles are attached to your clavicle. These muscles are attached to your jaw. These muscles are attached to your ribs. So for example... Your sternocleidomastoid, it's attached to the sternum and the clavicle. So you contract it, it lifts your clavicle, lifts your rib cage. So the fixed point there is your skull. Yes. So it's pulling to the skull. Yeah, increasing the volume. So it's trying to bring your chest up. Then the scalenes, so they're attached to ribs one and two, right? So they elevate ribs one and two, so further increasing thoracic volume. You got your pectoralis minor that attaches to ribs three and five, so elevates those. Uh, you got serratus posterior superior attaches to ribs two and five. Again, that elevates them. And then you've got your erector spina. So take a super big deep breath in. You can you basically contract and extend your back increasing the volume. So these muscles are all involved to take the biggest, deepest breath possible. And you'll, and you'll see if, if you have patients with respiratory conditions and they're really working hard to breathe, Sit they'll, in the neck, right? they'll be using all these muscles and yeah. working very hard to breathe. They almost, what you call tripoding, where they lean forward with their hands that are propping themselves up, but they're on a, like a 44 to 45 degree angle. And that's to try to utilize all these muscles to try and get as much expansion of the chest as possible. Oh, interesting. But again, if you're doing this over long periods of time, which some people do with these respiratory conditions, yeah. they're burning a lot of energy. And mm. again, this would lead to loss of weight or cachexia. Again, in emphysema, that's a, a common one is because they're working so hard to breathe and they're utilizing all these muscles to just get the gas Normal exchange that we gas you exchange. would do it at rest. Oh, it's crazy. So we've got that. Uh, so this is what we call that forced inspiration, right? Um, you want to bring all that air back out. You just relax all those muscles and rely on the elastic recall, right? But- that's just to you get need that to force air it out. out. If you want to force that air out, breathe out as much air as you forcibly can, well, now you can't just rely on the passive recoil of the elastic tissue and the muscles. You need to contract muscles that decrease your thoracic volume, like squeezing forcefully. a balloon to get more air out, right? You forcefully squeeze it to decrease the thoracic volume, increasing the pressure in there to push it out. And so these muscles include the internal intercostals. They bring the ribs back down again. The abdominal muscles, as you know, creates like that crunch. And so you you sort of contract your entire uh, thorax and abdomen. Um, More so abdomen because that's going to increase the, um, it's going to decrease the volume of your abdomen, which means increase the intradominal pressure, which is mm-hmm. going to force the diaphragm up. Very true. And that's, if any of you've had like, you know, infections where you've done a lot of coughing or even a lot of vomiting, mm. you get really sore abs the next day. Yeah, good it's point. because you're using so many of them to increase that force of breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. forced exhalation. Uh, and then there's some others like the transversus thoracus and serratus posterior inferior as well. But their same job is to sort of just depress those ribs, right? To decrease the volume there. So this is the mechanics of breathing in and breathing out, utilizing muscles and elastic recall and and so forth. Um, I think one of the final points I want to focus on is the neural control. Well, how do you, how do you control though that mechanics basically? Yes. yes. So uh, we need to go to the brain. 
And we need specifically to go to the brain stem and we need to have a look at not the midbrain, but the pons and the medulla. So remember the, the brain stem has three areas. The most superior top part is midbrain, then the pons in the middle, then the medulla at the bottom. We're focusing just on the pons and the medulla. So what do we know about this? Well, a couple of things. Firstly is when we breathe, there are a couple of neurons or groups of neurons, I should say, called nuclei present in the um, medulla. So you've got a group at the front called the ventral group, and then you've got a group at the back called the dorsal group. Now it's the ventral group that's probably the most important for taking a breath in, taking a breath out. So we're first going to focus on just quiet breathing, just the normal breathing we do. These neurons in the ventral group which we call the VRG, the ventral respiratory group, they send action potential signals that sort of amp up to the muscles. Yep. So they send a signal saying, okay, time to take a breath in. And it sends a downward signal through the phrenic nerve and the intercostals, tell them to contract. And we take a breath in for a couple of seconds. Then they switch off spontaneously. And then Again, all we need is the, re- the elastic recall, elastic recall yep. and the relaxation of those muscles and we breathe out. And we can just do that normally, no problem, right? That's just the medulla. The pons, however, it plays an important role just smoothing out that transition between the breath in and the breath out in the quiet mode and in the force mode. But let's just focus on the quiet mode. So the pons moves down, just says, okay, let's just smooth this out a little bit. If you've got damage in the pons, your quiet breath in and quiet breath out is a bit erratic, right? So it just shows you that it just smooths out that transition period between breathing in, breathing out. Now, the dorsal group of neurons, they play an important role in feedback to the ventral group. So it's sensory now. Yeah, so if you need to um, increase your respiration rate from exercise or threat or damage or whatever – it's because muscles, proprioceptors, chemoreceptors, baroreceptors have all picked up some signals, sent it to the dorsal group or dorsal respiratory group, which then sends it, funnels it through to the ventral and says, hey, you need to increase this inspiratory time, increase the rate and maybe decrease the expiratory time or maybe increase them. But it just modulates it yeah, yeah. according to what's happening in the environment. Feed- feedback loops. Feedback. So... The other thing that's located in the brainstem here is that what we call the central chemoreceptors. So your body has peripheral and central chemoreceptors that pick up changes in chemical concentrations, mainly carbon dioxide and hydrogen, but also a little bit of oxygen as well. So if the carbon dioxide goes too high, that's a big alarm signal because more carbon dioxide means more hydrogen ions, which means more acid, more acid, body doesn't like it, you get sick very quickly. So these chemoreceptors in the brainstem, but also in the uh, carotid uh, body. So like, yeah, so the some of the important blood vessels also have these chemoreceptors. Yeah, the carotid body and the aortic arch yep. uh, and in the brainstem as well. So if any of carbon dioxide goes up too high, hydrogen ions go too high, or maybe as a last measure, oxygen levels go too low, um, it sends that signal to the ventral well, ultimately to the DRG and then yeah. to the VRG and then modulates speeds, the breathing. Speeds up your breathing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, 
Breathing is ultimately controlled through the autonomic nervous system, right? So this is the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic. And a simplistic way of looking at it is that the sympathetic nervous system sends signals out through T1 to T5, thoracic 1 to thoracic 5, um, and will basically go to your um, uh, 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 airways to tell them to dilate, to open up right? To tell your bronchioles to to open up. Um, Your parasympathetic nervous system through the vagus nerve, so cranial nerve 10, uh, tells the airways to constrict. So that's another modulatory way of altering the air coming in or out. Um, And they'll also do that kind of auto-regulation themselves, right? That's right. None of this we necessarily do consciously. However, we can consciously breathe. Um, But we can't consciously tell our airways to dilate and constrict because that's autonomic, right? So with this feedback loop that you spoke about, so we've got the motor coming out from the ventral part to kind of dictate or tell the muscles to contract and the speed of contraction. Yes. And then you've got all the sensory components coming back in. This is kind of a coordinated reflex between each other just to ensure that not only the breathing is efficient, but it's keeping up with the demands of the body. Absolutely. So when this feedback becomes not necessarily disordered, but there's a an issue that arises in it, mm. we start to develop a condition known as dyspnea. Dyspnea. Or shortness of breath. Yes. And that could be due to you just have an overabundance of one of those gases or possibly your lungs become less compliant. So they're not Mm. following what the the motor signal is telling them. So if you've got stiff lungs, like some people develop something called uh, restrictive lung diseases yes. where they have too or much scar tissue, yeah. or scar tissue or inflammatory states or even something like pneumonia and the tissues of the lung become kind of stiff or over inflamed or full of edema. That means they're not expanding like they're told to. Yeah. And that feeds back by these proprioceptors back to the brain segment and say there's something going wrong here. Yes. And they have that feeling of shortness of breath or even if there's irritation within the airway. So this can happen with certain, uh, would you say, hypersensitive disorders, like mm-hmm. maybe like asthma or you've, br- you've breathed in certain toxic fumes and that causes irritation to the airway. Yeah. And that not only makes you cough, but it can also feed back and tell your brainstem or your medulla that there's a, a negative stimuli here and that can also cause you to have a, a degree of dyspnea or shortness of breath. Yeah. Perfect. And this is obviously one of the most common symptoms that are present in respiratory system diseases is, yeah. is dyspnea. And understanding this reflex, you can really start to make sense of how the respiratory disorders impact and cause that clinical manifestation. Totally. Totally. Um, look, there's a l- so much stuff to go through with the spiritual system. That was just a quick walkthrough, really, wasn't it? Was it was a quick walkthrough. Um, you know, there's so many things that we can dissect in future episodes. Um, we're going to do another episode of ventilation perfusion coupling. We'll We've pro- done that. Yeah, we might need to update a little bit. We'll see. Um, but there's so much stuff. Gas transport, I think we've already done. So we do have episodes in more detail. On the podcast, feel free to watch if you want more detail. Recommend others. Um, yeah. Re- yeah. Send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com um, or contact us on social media at Dr. Mike uh, on all platforms, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, so forth. Matt's not on anything. He's on Twitter, Twitter at Dr. Bartox. Um, 
But yeah, look, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, watch our videos, give us a five-star review, send us an email. If you have emailed us and we haven't got back to you, please send Blame Mike. I've been so busy. I'm usually the one that deals with the, with the emails. And if I haven't got back to you, please don't think it's because I've ignored you. I've been so busy. Please send it again. Please, and I will get back to you. Um, we really appreciate your support. Uh, and look, uh, just give us a five-star review and say we're the best. That's all we ask for. That's it. This is, that's all we ask for. Just, to be, t- just to be told we're the best in the world. That's all. Just constant affirmation. <laughs> anyway, look after yourself. Matt, thank you again. See you next week. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 